Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Carl Weinberg joins us now, Chief Economist at High Frequency uh, economics and and Carl, I read your notes uh, regularly and with great interest. And you wrote in a recent one here: every country uh, in this edition of of your Global Outlook boils down to a discussion of yield curve prospects. This is the overarching theme here. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we have uh, quantitative easing issues in Europe. The ECB is out of sovereign bonds to buy. That's a problem. Uh, negative bond yields are unnatural, and without the support of uh, ECB buying, our I don't think they can persist. In the UK, uh, we have uh, everywhere we have rising inflation concerns, although there really aren't inflation figures out there at the core that suggest there's an inflation problem. The market's perceiving it uh, as such. And of course, we have the Fed on the move and the correlations between long-term bond yields uh, abroad and and what happens to U.S. Treasury markets is close to 100%. So steepening yield curves everywhere out there. And and the world doesn't need this right now, except maybe here in the United States. We'll talk about the Fed here in just a minute. And I want to ask you what you heard from Mario Draghi uh, last week. I remember a few meetings back, the conversation really centered on scarcity, what, what the ECB was going to buy. How has that conversation shifted? Mario was so slippery in his, com- <laughs> in his comments this week. He, yeah. he, he talked about, you know, continued, well continued bond purchases, you know, forever. And that's certainly possible. But he nowhere in his statement did he use the word sovereign bond or public sector purchase program. And the reality is they're out of public sector bonds to buy. They're now buying at the short end in Germany because there aren't enough long bonds for them to buy. As they step away, as they taper their public sector purchasing program, as far as I'm concerned, quantitative easing is dead. Because buying corporates is not QE. It changes the price of a single security, but not the whole yield curve. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Carl Weinberg with me and Eric. David Gurra in Washington. Yes. Uh, What a day, David, to be in Washington. I had no idea the scoring was uh, creeping up on us. Uh, We're we're thinking it may happen today, yeah. Um, Carl, I, I, I look at all that's going on. There still has to be a measurement of GDP. What does your colleague Jim say? Mm. about the run rate of U.S. GDP as we go to this big Fed decision and then on from there. Yeah, you know, Tom, we have the, the very, very near term, the current quarter, which is certainly shaping up to be disappointing. But we have a medium term growth running at about two and a quarter up to two and three quarter percent, according to Jim O'Sullivan's uh, forecast. High frequency, you know, is looking at uh, what the Trump administration has promised. And we're a little bit more skeptical than the market that we're going to get everything that has been in the president's rhetoric. So Jim's added a half a percent to GDP growth in the second half of this year to account for something getting in there in terms of infrastructure and so forth. But so far, and let me say it this way, probably like many members of the FOMC, there's no hard basis to change the forecast for GDP based on what we've seen out of the Trump administration so far. We'll see if we get all the principles in place here because of the snow for that uh, for that two-day meeting. Maybe it'll have to be done uh, telephonically. But, um, Carl, let me ask you about something I read in the Times this morning. Benjamin Applebaum writing about the potential here for a collision uh, between the Fed chair and the president when it comes to 
uh, 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 growth when it comes to what the Fed is intending to do. When are we going to see an impact if indeed they are on this slow motion track for collision? Yeah, I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head, David. We're looking at a Fed that has its mandate, and its mandate is uh, full employment and uh, price stability. And as uh, certainly Stanley Fisher, Fed Vice Chairman, has said numerous times, where we are right now, we're just about at that point, at uh, nearly 4.5% unemployment and 2.5% uh, price increases, that we've achieved our objectives. The Fed has achieved its objectives. The president wants to see more growth, wants to see lower unemployment, and that's a, that's a conflict. And I think that uh, it's going to be certainly one of those, you know, foot on the accelerator, mm. foot on the brake uh, kind of challenges to see where we move okay, forward. But when they raise rates Wednesday, nothing happens, right? It's when. When, when do you presume it begins to actually have an effect where, where higher Fed funds yelling rates dampen the, 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 the growth of the growth, if you will? Yeah, well, monetary policy takes a while to work. We know that. And just in, in the traditional textbook sort of thing, you know, monetary policy could take a year or 18 months to affect the economy. But it will affect the financial markets sooner. And this is, you know, what we're all sitting on the edges of our seat waiting to see. You know, the, the stock market and the, could look at this and the bond market could look at this and say, gee, this is really bad. The Fed is hiking rates. You know, that's going to cause a recession. Or they could look at, the, at this and say, well, the Fed is hiking rates because the economy is good and we should be stronger. And I have no way of predicting how the market's going to go for this. But fi financial conditions are where you'll see the first impact of Fed policy, not necessarily in real investment activity. Any chance they go by more than a quarter point here? Well, it's not in our thinking, and we haven't gotten anything to suggest that they're talking in those terms. Uh, but, you know, anything is possible. We're in unexplored territory at uh, the unemployment rate where it is right now, uh, pushing rapidly toward that 4.5% floor that everybody thinks is, is where the bottom has to be and showing no sign of stopping. Right. Look at the strong labor market. Anything's possible, but it's not in our help, thinking. Help us get out front of the event of the week, which is a scoring, if you will, of the Trump care, whatever you want to call it. And also the event of the week, which is David Gura talking with Alice Rivlin. How does <laughs> how does Carl Weinberg use the Congressional Budget Office day to day? Well, not very much. In this particular instance, you know, they're going to be one of many pieces of input into a legislative process that only has part of its feet on the floor with economics, on the same floor as economic fundamentals. So uh, at the end of the day, what the CBO comes up with is going to be political. There are going to be other points of view. Um, uh, so I think it's just one more piece into the conversation. Factor in just sort of what this legislation would mean for the U.S. economy, if we were to see uh, Obamacare removed and something new put in, what effect would that have uh, on the U.S. economy? Well, David, you raised the, the ten squinjillion dollar question, which is what's <laughs> going to be put in place right. of it. Simply pulling it out in the legislation that's currently in front of us, there are a number of unknown unknowns. I know you're going to be talking later about long-term sustainability right. and social security and Medicare. There are immediate tax consequences because taxes on high in tax tax taxes imposed on high-income individuals, the upper end of the income distribution, will be eliminated as part of that. And that not only has an impact on the economy and on the fiscal budget, but also on uh, the overall view of the uh, fiscal hawks within the Republican Party who will want to see at some point these reductions in taxation paid for. So there are just a lot of really gray areas in where this conversation goes from here, regardless of what CBO says this week. Oh, lots to talk about here. Crow Weinberg, High Frequency Economics, uh, with us as well. David Gurren in Washington. David
David, what are you doing down there? I mean, you have <laughs> you have I, Vice Chair Rivlin, who, who I adore, and folks founded the CBO with a lot of courage. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, just a great opportunity to talk to you about then, that and about the Fed as well. And I'm going to be talking with Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA, oh. uh, as well today. And, uh, you know, we're looking ahead to this visit tomorrow that's scheduled at least. Chancellor Angela Merkel is supposed to be here. Uh, if all goes according to plan, I'll be outside the White House there anchoring our coverage uh, of her visit. But, uh, of course, with the snow, we'll see what happens, uh, you know, if indeed she'll get here and if the, the news conference that they've scheduled with her and President yeah. Trump actually happens. I just saw 12 to 24 inches. Rob Carroll in giving some updates here, but a lot of different inches. I believe, David Gurr, Reagan gets 48 inches. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's called an Ovechkin. Exactly. It's a hockey goal height snow. It just drops within six gates of American Airlines. Yeah. Carl, you want to comment on this? No, Tom, the, the reason they invented weather forecasting was to make economic forecasts Look good. Be nice. <laughs> be nice. Rob Carolyn is the best. And we'll have reports from Mr. Carolyn, our lack of hysteria weather guy, through the morning. Carl Weinberg uh, with us with High Frequency Economics. Greg Villiers just published his note moments ago, and he goes to the gridlock in Washington. How can we have gridlock in Washington if I have a Republican Senate, a Republican House, and a Republican president? Ue la, la gridlock. Did you like that, David? Thank you. <laughs> I did like that. <laughs> L at EC. All right. Um, the, uh, you know, I'm not a political analyst, but you don't have to be a political analyst to see that the Republican Party is really several parties right now with several different specific uh, groups. The fiscal hawks, the Tea Party gang have their point of view. The conservatives have their point of view. And then there are sub-blends of each of the others. Um, and they're not united behind the president, who seems to be yet another ilk of Republicans. So having all the different control of all the different houses is no assurance of success right now. And I think the, that's best illustrated on the health care debate, where we have uh, real question marks as to how to move forward and what we're supposed to be accomplishing. Yeah, Carl, I think what uh, Greg Vallier is getting at is that the markets were very enthusiastic after the election. They thought there was a high chance that something was – many things were going to get done and get done quickly. It seems like there's been a bit of a reevaluation uh, here. So less from the political perspective, more from the markets perspective. Have you seen that happen? Well, we haven't seen it yet, uh, David, but uh, my colleague Jim O'Sullivan, chief U.S. economist at High Frequency Economics, hasn't really budged his forecast very much for the economy since Election Day. We've, he's added half a percent to GDP growth in the second half of this year on the, the view that something's going to get done on the fiscal side. But uh, overall, his view of the economy remains the same. The economy is strong. It was going to remain strong with or without uh, the Trump agenda. And it, uh, it, it's not going to move that much in the near term. But then is what we're going to get here, and frankly, it's more than just a domestic question, is a drop in the new confidence. Part of this is the animal spirits, a confidence, a belief in what we've got. It is what we're really going to see here is a, a decline and that buoyancy since November 8th. Absolutely, uh, Tom. That's the way that uh, Jim sees the, uh, uh, the, the see this working out. The resolution between consumer confidence and business confidence that's so high and economic indicators that are substantially lower than that, at the end of the day, we think the confidence indicators work their way back down toward the reality that the economy is delivering and not the other way around. How about a buoyancy in oil prices? What are you and Jim seeing uh, when it comes to energy prices? We had that DOE report last week on stockpiles, crude stockpiles at uh, record highs. You see that changing. Pretty pretty brave, David, talking about buoyancy as, as prices are actually <laughs> sinking uh, as, we, RL, as we speak. I've been uh, b expecting oil prices to go back down to the 40 to 50 mm. range uh, for some time now. 
the inventories are so high. You've got uh, 66 days of inventories in the OECD countries, and normal is about 54. So that's 12 days or half a billion barrels of oil sitting around and waiting to be dumped on the market. You have tidal oil producers coming back on. There's no way prices can go any way but down, and, and that's been our outlook. It's a problem for the emerging world that produces this. It's a problem for OPEC. It's a problem uh, for Russia. Something to think about, uh, David and Tom, as interest rates go up, the ability to finance these inventories go down. So one of our background views has been that as interest rates yeah. go up, we're going to see liquidation of these inventories and even more downward pressure on prices. We need to very quickly here turn to something more important. Are you going to put chains on your car <laughs> here as you move north from New York City? I am uh, up in Rhinebeck, New York, way north of the city. We're expecting two feet of snow, and wow. I've got a four-wheel drive vehicle that goes through anything. Did you lose three fingers on your left hand freezing when you know years ago? There's always one piece of one rear tire chain that doesn't work, <laughs> and you need to get out a blowtorch. I haven't I it. haven't had that experience. I haven't had chains since I lived in Italy, and I had to get my Alfa Romeo is, Sportster into the Alps. Is a southern is a southern boy ever enjoyed chain slush and salt? David, have you ever uh, done this? I, I have never applied chains see, to a vehicle, but uh, see I've seen them in action. Well, very good. I've uh, seen them in action. <laughs> we, we have chains coming up, folks. We're going to get a real snowstorm. What are you going to get, Carl, up north? More uh, than two feet? They're saying two feet at least uh, up where I am. That's what oh the local gosh. forecasters are saying. And, uh, of course, in the mountains, it's probably going to be more than that. Mm -hmm. I'm right at the foot of the Catskills. Storm Surveillance Center here, folks. Yeah. We'll have much more. Rob Carolyn will give us some perspective. And this is what Rob does best is these nor'easters. For those of you globally, nor'easters, and I'm not going to try to be weather guy here, but they have a life of their own. In any forecast, they're always with a big asterisk, like, eh, maybe we sort of know what's going to go on. But Rob Carolyn will give us perspective through today and Whenever the snow starts, you're going to get sometime. some milk and bread, Tom. You're going to run so, out. Oh yeah, we've already done that. We stocked. <laughs> we're down at Whole Foods. Everybody's stocking the water, grain. water, milk, eggs, twelve grain bed, <laughs> and the kale. David in the produce down at Columbus Circle Whole yes. Foods. The kale was Raise just it while you still can. There was this big hole with the kale. <laughs> People had take and the kale chips. Yeah, Colin of the twins. He stocked up with fourteen bags of kale chips. There's a storm coming. We'll have more for you. Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Tom Keene in New York. David Gura at the 99.1 FM uh, News Bureau in Washington. And you have a special guest, David. Yeah, the backdrop for my visit here, obviously, is the ongoing debate on Capitol Hill about the new health care legislation, and uh, we await eagerly the report from the CBO, the score from the CBO, score. Uh, to see what that organization has to say about that piece of legislation. Mike McGinnis joins me here in the 991 studio. She's the president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, great to have you here, Maya. And let me just start. We'll talk about deficits, all that in just a sec. But what's the, the role of the CBO as you see it? You've heard the commentary about it in recent weeks, uh, some members of the administration calling its integrity into, into question. How do you regard the CBO? How do you use the CBO? And, and how novel is this? How different is it to hear uh, its integrity called into question? So the CBO plays an incredibly important role, I believe, because in a, in a town and in an environment where things have become more and more partisan, more and more political, and there, we're seeing kind of the ongoing undermining of impartial institutions, 
to me, the Congressional Budget Office is the one that I hold up as this is an institution that is not political, that is analytical. And the scores that it puts out, of course, they're not perfect because they're doing major projections of major economic and policy pieces of legislation. But they are unbiased in their work, which is so important and critical at a time when you, you have a hard time trusting the two parties' take on something, and you really just want to know what the numbers are. So I would say CBO is one of, I think, the most important players in keeping us honest and not political. And I've been really disappointed, I have to say, in what I think is a strategy of undermining their credibility instead of saying, we want numbers that are going to add up. Or if they give us a score that says this costs more than it was supposed to, how do we go back and improve the legislation? So I hope... Um, that the politics of undermining CBO will stop as quickly as possible. Last week we had Gary Cohn, the head of the NEC, speaking. He said, uh, we care about the deficit, we care about revenue. That from uh, the administration. Do you take him at face value? Have you seen evidence of that here in these first uh, six weeks of this administration? Well, it's hard to see the evidence because the policies haven't come out yet. Mm. Um, what I'm looking at is who's saying what in the administration. And I was very encouraged by Director Cohn's remarks about how they don't want to make the deficit worse over the next 10 years. Um, and let me just set the stage on that. The deficit is going to be made much worse in the next 10 years if we do nothing. We are on track to borrow $9 trillion over the next 10 years. So I interpreted his point as saying we're not going to make that worse. I'd like to nudge them in a different direction, which is we're actually going to make that better. Mm. But I thought his remarks were very encouraging, particularly because we've heard about a lot of policies that could and would worsen the fiscal situation, whether it's health care, if they do get a bad score and proceed without worrying about that, or tax reform if it were to lose revenue, mm. or infrastructure if it were to yeah. be very expensive and not paid for. So I thought he put an important marker down and was really pleased to see those comments. Help me with the tax credits. I mean, folks, I, I don't want to get into the weeds on this debate, but basically they want to shift the tax credits, and there's an uproar that they're of minimal value to our truly poor and needy people. Maya, help us with your analysis of tax credits. So what we're doing is we're switching the way that we're creating the subsidies within our health care program. And there's always going to be subsidies because, for instance, the young are going to subsidize the old, the rich are going to subsidize the poor. The question is to what extent those will be true and what structure we're using. This new replacement plan is going to be dependent on tax credits, and there was a big fight whether those tax credits should be refundable and whether they should be refundable, meaning that you would get them even if you didn't pay income taxes, and advanceable, meaning you would get them in advance. And they ended up creating a plan that would include those. So those would help people who are above the qualifying lines for Medicaid, but on the much poorer side of the spectrum. There's been a lot of pushback from the conservatives in particular because they see that as a new form of entitlement spending. And one of their purposes to repeal Obamacare in the first place was they didn't like the entitlement nature of it. They wanted to, to change that. So they're unhappy with those refundable tax credits. This week we get what's called the skinny budget. We had a sort of broad overview from the White House of what it wants its uh, budget to be a couple of weeks back. Of course, the headline figure there was that $54 billion in additional defense spending. The, the administration said they'd offset that with cuts to other programs. How difficult is that going to be? You listen to the president speak to that joint session of Congress. He talked about doing away with the sequester as if it could be done so easily by waving a, a wand. How hard is that going to be? Uh, and, and what do you make there of the desire to increase the defense budget uh, rather than uh, you know, cutting other programs. Mm -hmm. So the first point about the skinny budget is it's going to be really, really 
really skinny, um, emaciated in some ways. Because normally when a new president comes in, they do do a much smaller budget because they haven't had time. Director Mulvaney hasn't been in place to put together a full budget. But this one is only going to look at the discretionary portion of the budget, defense and domestic discretionary, nothing on revenue, nothing on entitlements, and it may only be for one year. So it really doesn't paint the full picture of the budget. In terms of the priorities we're hearing about this budget, the increase in defense will be paid for for cuts in domestic discretionary. What I applaud them for is that they're paying for it. If you want to do more of something, how are you going to pay for it? That's very important. Now, many people will disagree with the priorities, and I think there are legitimate disagreements on both sides. I leave it to the security experts whether we need more or less in defense. But I do think they will bump into some real problems, even from their own party on the appropriators, when they're making this big cuts in domestic discretionary. Mm. And if they make them, the key will be, will they stick? Will the appropriators and Congress actually go along with it in a in a sustained way. I have a chart I'm working on that I'm going to put out here in a moment, and I'll refine it for tomorrow. And Ms. McGinnis, it's a basic chart that says the Republicans spend more. It goes back to 1970-something, and it shows Reagan advent, Bush senior advent, Bush junior advent, and Trump advent. And do you just presume that, tr- that Republican presidents end up spending more and adding to our debt? That's a great question. I would like to see your chart. It seems plausible um, in recent years. Basically, there's so many things that are going on. But the, the myth that Republicans want to cut spending and, by the way, that Democrats want to raise taxes doesn't usually end up playing out, particularly when there's one party government. So the real cuts in spending would be in entitlements. And so far, it doesn't seem like we're on track to see any of that. So spending is going to grow under this Republican Uh, House, Senate, and White House, unless some dramatic things happen, even if they go forward and do what they're talking about, cutting a lot out of domestic discretionary, because unless you do something to control health care costs and deal with our retirement challenges, spending is on track to grow significantly and, in fact, dramatically. So we are on track that both spending and taxes will be well above their historical averages. That's like that trend is likely to stay in place. Um, So what I have seen is a lot of talk about spending ends up being symbolic. Mm. It ends up being about the small things like earmarks because people are really unwilling to tackle the biggest areas of spending, health care and retirement. Just in the limited time we have left here, let me return to something that you said at the top. You said you're looking at the the people within the administration driving this. Mick Mulvaney is the head of the Office of Management and Budget. How does he uh, work with, complement Gary Cohn, say? In other words, Mm -hmm. uh, is Mick Mulvaney markedly, radically different than other people in this administration who are driving economic policy? And how does the administration then get uh, those guys to work together? So that's that's a good question. Mick Mulvaney is certainly somebody who I've been listening to very closely because starting in his testimony, he actually was the person who most emphasized, one, the fiscal challenges the country faces, and two, a, reali- a realistic take on it. Because we've been hearing a lot of promises about both tackling the debt and a lot of policies that would make the debt worse. So that's why I thought Gary Cohen's Mm. comments were very important Mm. on tax reform. But Mick Mulvaney has gone farther and reminded the administration he's going to be the person who says no, a tough but really important job Mm. because everybody wants to give political giveaways, and he's going to remind them entitlement reform is the center of this, and they cannot run away from it if they're serious about dealing with the debt. I'm so glad you brought up giveaways. How many giveaways is Northwestern going to do against Vanderbilt (laughs) coming up here? My help here. This is all brand new for the purple, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) As a Northwestern alum, this is a whole new experience for us. Okay, well, the good news for you is Mr. Gurr has been through this like (laughs) 8,000 consecutive times. 
Being from North Carolina, I have yeah. no clue. Old hat. That, but, well, but, we'll get you. We'll get you involved. Too. I have Northwestern beating Vanderbilt. Oh yeah. <laughs> I only did that for our esteemed guests. Maya, Thanks. Thank you so much for a great perspective. David Gurr in Washington. I'm Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Bring in our wonderful guests. I mean, it's it's just such a pleasure to talk to smart people. David, that actually once darkened the door of the evil CBO. Exactly. Douglas Holtzikin on the line, former chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Great to have you here as we await this score from the CBO on the American Health Care Act. And Doug, help us out. First of all, we talk about the CBO score, and I think we don't know what we're talking about. I can admit, we don't know what we're talking about. What is it? What is a CBO score? What are we going to get from the CBO? Uh, the CBO's primary job is to estimate the impact on, on the federal budget of any legislation that, that Congress is considering. So what you'll get from the CBO is if you pass the American Health Care Act, what happens to revenue flows into the Treasury, what happens to spending flows out of the Treasury year by year for the next 10 years. Uh, the main purpose of that score is to make sure that the bill satisfies the requirements of the, quote, reconciliation instruction, which is that it saves $2 billion over the next 10 years. That won't be the, the focus of the attention. That's actually what the score is. Mm. It's the supplementary information on coverage and premiums that CBO may release along with it that I think most people are going to look at. I want to go back to something that Tom said a moment ago. He said he was surprised by how quickly this is happening. The CBO does amazingly detailed work on a very quick a timetable. We only got this legislation a couple weeks back, and as you say, we're going to get some great detail uh, as soon as today. Um, CBO has been working with the staffs on energy and commerce and ways and means in this case uh, for quite some time. Uh, the staffs will typically produce some rough sketch of what they'd like to do. CBO would say, okay, it looks sort of like this. We need some details here or there. So they've probably had, without exaggeration, 10, 15 iterations leading up to this, which is the actual yeah. first official score. Help us here, Dr. Holtzikin, with the nefarious Ford House office building. <laughs> it is this concrete fortress. It looks like, you know, nether east German, uh, Germany, and it's not connected to the Capitol. You are at a discrete difference. What do they do on the fourth floor? at the Ford <laughs> office building. What is in the Kool-Aid at the dreaded CBO? So you should know that the Ford building is a former FBI fingerprint storage uh-huh. oh, We knew it this. Has, <laughs> it, it has all the ambience one would expect of that. Um, and uh, what's in the Kool-Aid there is simply a desire to understand the research literature that's necessary to score a bill, in this case, how do insurance markets work? What do we know about uh, the, the pri- providers who are going to work under those contracts? And uh, to, you know, anticipate Congress's needs. So it's really a very academic, research-oriented institution that is, you know, physically somewhat separate from the Capitol. You know, I, I want to get from you a sense of how unorthodox all that we've seen uh, is. We've seen this legislation pushed through committee without the CBO score. We've heard a lot of rhetoric about uh, the CBO's impartiality, questioning that impartiality. Uh, how different is this that we're seeing, and, and how worried about it are you? I, 
I think this is business as usual, to be honest. I'm not a bit worried about it. Um, if you work at CBO, as I did, you get criticized all the time from many different quarters. Um, you, you know, you're simply not going to be able to please everybody all the time, and you shouldn't. And so these, these, these issues arise uh, as a matter of course. Um, it's also true that often bills go through the markup they went through without a CBO score. The, the only bill that really matters is the bill that comes out of the Budget Committee. That's the first complete bill the one that will go to the uh, floor of the House for a vote, that's when you need to know what the CBO score is. So from a business point of view, they're right on track. You were the, the head of the CBO when uh, those tax cuts in 2003 were, were passed by the Congress. Here we are looking at yes. tax reform, and I wonder what this approach to health care tells you about what this Congress's approach to, to tax reform is going to be. Uh, I think we've seen the, the use of reconciliation uh, that, that guarantees the Democrats aren't going to uh, play. It's going to be done entirely with Republican votes. Uh, this is way harder than tax reform. I mean, health care is simply much more divisive both within the parties and across the parties. And I expect this bill to pass the House and to pass the Senate, but it's going to be a long, hard process. Tax reform will look a lot easier by comparison. Hey, look at um – the plugins here and the upshot today, Kevin Quayley, with a terrific upshot today of how broad the estimates are, the guesstimates of Trump Care, GOP Care, Holtz Eakin Care, whatever you want to, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. I mean, how many plugins are involved here, and can we actually get a decent guesstimate? Uh, well, I'll give you a flavor of just how hard this is. An important part of the bill is uh, 15 billion in 2008, 10 billion every year thereafter to the states for a fund that can be used to stabilize insurance markets in, the, in each state. What will the states do with that money? Uh, will they accept the federal default reinsurance program, or will they create their own? Will they give folks additional money for cash uh, to cover out-of-pocket expenses? How CBO expects that money to be spent has an enormous impact on the premiums that will prevail in those markets. That has an enormous impact on the coverage numbers that they expect. And it's literally unknowable. I mean, they've called the states, they've talked to the governors' associations, they've done what they can, but that's a really hard thing to estimate. Doug, last question here. Uh, I'm in Washington. It's the first time I've been back since uh, President Trump was was inaugurated. I wonder, I want to get your sense of how much this place has changed. We're facing a debt ceiling deadline, a continuing resolution set to expire. Uh, The the same old obstacles seem to be here uh, in Washington. Has the process changed at all over the last three, four months? I think this is the big test of whether the process has changed. Can the Republicans, who now control the House, the Senate, and the White House, collectively govern effectively? Can they pass legislation with the help of a president who's going to, you know, twist arms when he needs to and get things done? Or will we end up with more stalemate? Uh, I I think this is a very important moment for for the Republicans who are going to run in 2018 on their their accomplishments as a governing party. Well, this is the first test. Dr. Holtzikin, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. He's a former director of the Congressional uh, Budget Office. David Gura in Washington today in our Bloomberg 99.1 studios. Tom Keene in New York. It's a pleasure to be joined by Greg Vallier, Chief Global Strategist at Horizon Investments here. He sounds the clarion this morning uh, in his note. He says, two enormously controversial issues, Obamacare replacement and a radical new budget promise to throw Washington into gridlock, further jeopardizing chances for tax reform uh, this year. So we're looking at legislative gridlock and snow-related gridlock uh, tomorrow. Greg, great to have you here. 
Uh, how bad is it going to be, uh, do you think? How, how's this shape? It's funny. I talked to people about this yeah. health care bill, and, and I have difficulty finding those who very fulsomely support it. It has its backwards in, in, in House Speaker Paul Ryan, but where's the rest of the support going to come from? Yeah, like Trump said, uh, who knew it was going to be this complicated, yeah. right? Uh, good to see you. Good, good morning. You. Uh, I think this is going to take a long, long time to iron out. I, I, I don't rule out the House and Paul Ryan getting a deal by mid-April, but the Senate would never go along with this. You know, maybe the goal is just to get a bill to conference and two different bills, and you could iron out a deal then. But we're talking summer before we get an Obamacare replacement, if then. So the point I've been making lately is that when you combine this with all the fights about to come on the budget, we're, we're talking about a tax reform bill that probably won't make it this year. With this Obamacare replacement, help me with the realism here. We're waiting for this score from the CBO. There's been a lot of political pushback because uh, they went to committee without getting that, yeah. uh, that score. Is the rush to get this through misguided? Uh, you know, they're they're still saying they could get something by April. You're yeah. saying it could be uh, well into the into the summer. Why not? Why not just go get that CBO score before doing all of that? Well, how is this for an irony, Dave? Eight years ago, we had the exact same scenario with Barack Obama squandering his political capital. You know, we hope and change all this stuff, and we had a meltdown on health reform. So here, eight years later, it's as if no one has learned a lesson. Uh, the scoring today or tomorrow is going to be bad, or could it be really bad? Mm. It's going to make the case for Ryan's bill even tougher to make. How is the, the, the scoring? We've gotten scores from Brookings. We've gotten scores from S&P Global as yeah. well. Is this going to be the same thing, but with the imprimatur of, of this uh, of this nonpartisan entity, or uh, is it going to give us more detail than those scores have given us? Probably more detail, and I think they're pretty kosher. I think the the CBO, yeah, they're 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 pretty uh, pretty reliable in in my opinion. Yeah. The the big part of the story that's going to blow up and already has is Medicaid. You've got a lot of moderate Republicans like Rob Portman of Ohio. Who are saying, no way in the world are we going to pass a bill that guts right. Medicaid. You know, I'm a mere mortal, Greg, unlike you, that have a complete <laughs> wiretap into every permutation of this. I've read my obligatory 14 articles, and I went right to what you just mentioned, which this is about Medicaid and senators. I am thunderstruck by the focus on the president and the House in minimal discussion of Senate realities. What are those Senate realities? Well, just as you said, Tom, and good morning to you, I think that the Medicaid cuts are a non-starter. These are not negotiable with people like Rob Portman. And I'd say maybe as many as a dozen other yeah. Republicans are saying we won't go along with this bill. So it's it's in big right. trouble, even if it makes it through the House in the next few weeks. Well, you know, let's, let's go through the math again. I believe there's 100 senators, something in the vicinity of that. Yep. They have exactly two votes to play with. Yep. And like on Planned Parenthood, it's X number of senators. On Medicaid, it's Y number of senators. Forget about Rand Paul. But on each of these issues, there's a certain number of senators who just will say no, right? Well, unless they can be persuaded by the great deal maker, Donald Trump, uh, who feels that he can inject himself into this and somehow uh, get a compromise. It's not out of the question that you could get some softening on the Medicaid stuff that could satisfy people like Rob Portman. But right now, if there were a vote today, it would lose in the Senate by at least a dozen votes. Yeah. We were talking with uh, Douglas Holtz, formerly of the, the CBO, a little while ago, uh, and he said that 
a repeal or replacement of the Affordable Care Act is going to be way harder than, than tax reform. You mentioned eight years ago. Yeah. I remember all the political capital that was spent by the Democrats to get that legislation through. Now you see Republicans kind of repeating that, putting a lot of chips on the table here to get uh, a repeal or replacement uh, done. Was that a mistake? Should they have gone with tax reform first? What, what's the calculus here that they use to, to come up with the order of operations here in Washington? Well, let's go back just for a second, Dave, eight years ago. Even Chuck Schumer has said the uh, Obama White House miscalculated by going to health care first. And again, I think we're seeing a, a repeat now. I would go for the tax cuts. That would be, I think, easier at this point. But they won't. And e even if we get Obamacare resolved, the budget stories you guys will all report on for the rest of this week are really dramatic. Uh, huge cuts, draconian cuts. And once again, the problem won't be Democrats. The problem will be Republicans who will say these cuts are too harsh. You, you mentioned the budget. We get the skinny budget. I love the term. Uh, later this week, what what color is going to be in there that wasn't in the overview a few weeks back? What what more detail are you expecting we'll get from the White House? Well, I think the uh, drop in federal employees. It was a big story in the Washington Post this morning, talking about a huge cut in federal employees having an impact on the D.C. area, real estate, things like that. I'm sure the country won't be particularly sympathetic uh, to Washington D.C. But the other part of the story is the enormity of the. Defense increases. I personally think that's going to happen. And I tell all of my clients, if there's one pure investment play in Washington, it's the defense stocks. Do you assume, Greg, that our debt to GDP just rises and rises? I mean, is the, is the synthesis of many of these what-ifs, I understand there's huge variables, <laughs> but do you just assume it's like Reagan or Bush 1 or Bush 2 that up, up we go in debt to GDP? Well, the good news, Tom, is that the bond market, I think, can tolerate the current levels where, you know, on an annual basis, the deficit's around 3% of GDP. That's right. acceptable. But as we get toward the end of this decade, and then things, as we all get older, then we spend more money, things could get really sour in a hurry for the bond market. So we've got a year or two of grace before the deficit becomes a big, big problem. Where are the deficit hawks? We talked with Maya McGinnis yeah. this morning. She's, she's one of them. She's a, a leader of that, of that yeah. pack. Are they present in Washington right now? How big a part of the conversation are they? Well, they're articulate, and they can make a lot of noise. Yeah. But in terms of actually getting something done, the counterargument is the Treasury 10-year bond yield. It's crept up a little. It's probably uh, 2.58 or something like that. But that's still a very low uh, yield for bonds. So you'd have to oh. see the bond market really freak out, and we haven't seen it yet. David, what's a skinny budget? No one's ever presented <laughs> me. John Tucker, have I ever been presented with a skinny budget? No. <laughs> Other than get a trainer? Except when it applies to your salary. I'd like yeah. to give my wife one. There you go. <laughs> what is oh. a skinny budget, David? Uh, skinny budget, I gather, is just a bit more detail. And then what, in April, Greg, we'll get more detail still? Yeah, and by the way, guys, there's two other big budget stories. On Wednesday, we hit the debt ceiling. It's going to be months before they get that resolved. And then on April 28th, the government runs out of money, yeah, this yeah. continuing resolution. which detail. is You know, it's, it's wonky, but you've got two okay. big issues hanging over the White House over Let, the next let's month. Let's do this. Greg Vellier with us with the rise. We're going to come back because Greg Vellier is focused on gridlock, Republican. Republican, Republican gridlock. Craig Villiers in Washington with our David Gura. And, uh, you know, it's really timely, David, to have Mr. Villiers with us because he's from New Hampshire and he remembers the great snow of 1770. <laughs> 
Bloomberg uh, meteorologist Rob Carolyn's uh, descendant Cotton Mather gave us a report on that. Over 60 <laughs> inches of snow over five or six yeah. uh, days. Turkeys died. Deers died. Deer died, I should say. Excuse my English. The great snow of 1717 lends perspective, David. Snowball in the hands of an angry god, I yes. think, was the, the sermon, Tom. Thank you very much. Greg Fallier with me here in our Bloomberg 99.1 uh, studios. Greg, help us understand what we're seeing. We're seeing what's happening on Capitol Hill with, with health care. What does that tell us about how the tax reform debate is going to play out? Well, first of all, I'm going to be in New Hampshire this Uh-oh. evening, so it should be an interesting uh, 24 hours of snow. Well, the, the debate on the Hill is really important for the financial markets to this extent. If they can't get this stuff done, Obamacare, budget, what does that say for the good stuff? The good stuff being tax reform, infrastructure. Most everyone had assumed a GDP impact of all this stuff by winter of next year. That GDP impact may be delayed by a fair amount. You mentioned April 28th before we went to to break. How big a forcing mechanism uh, is that date? You'd like to think that it would impose some discipline, but it will not. Uh, we'll, t- April 28th will come and go, just like this Wednesday will come and go on the debt ceiling. They'll do extensions. They'll extend the, uh, the government for another two, three months. The debt ceiling probably won't be dealt with with finality until midsummer. You've written about the sausage making and how it's taking far longer than the president and uh, many investors thought it would. When you talk to clients, when you go on the road, what do they say? What do they ask you? about the timetable here in Washington, and, and, you know, is it fair to say that a lot of investors got this wrong? They were overly optimistic. Well, two things investors say a lot. Number one is, let's talk about the details on the tax bill. Do we have this border adjustability? Do we have limits on deductions? Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of really big topics have still not been resolved, number one. Number two, I'm astonished by how many clients I see, conservatives, who say, I wish this guy would stop tweeting. It's not adult. Yeah. He doesn't sound presidential. You get that from almost everybody. Tom hears that too, to be fair. Yeah, I do. You know, Tom, please just stop it. You know. Yep, exactly. Line up my children who say, Dad. Greg, help me here in your note this morning. You mentioned the word gridlock. Gridlock yep. assumes that Tip O'Neill will ride to the rescue and have a cordial conversation with the Gipper. Uh, I, I, is there any tone of compromise between good parties of the House, the Senate, and the White House? Well, first and foremost, Tom, there will be no help from Democrats. Zero. Okay, I get that. And secondly, you would have to assume that Trump will inject himself and may be able to get some things done. But you almost have an impossible task with the so-called Freedom Caucus, uh, which will not want to raise the debt ceiling, has their own idea on taxes, on health care. They will not agree with Ryan. Ryan, I sort of feel sorry for. He's in the same bind that uh, Boehner was in. And that bind that Boehner was in eventually cost him his job. What's the dumb question of the day? I'm allowed to do that, David. Snowstorm coming. What's the difference between the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party? Not much. I'd say they're pretty much analogous. They, they both uh, don't want to spend money. They don't want to spend money on infrastructure. They consider this health reform plan like Obamacare light. They're very angry about it. And then you've got to go on the other side of the hill and look at all these moderate senators who roll their eyes and say, we're not going to go along with the Freedom Caucus. You float the idea of bifurcating tax reform, doing corporate tax reform and personal tax reform separately. 
What's the advantage to doing that? And if you look at sort of how slowly things are progressing, does that stand to slow things down even more if you've got two different things that these lawmakers are working on? Well, I know it's being debated intensely within the Trump administration, and I got this from a very good source. Uh, There are pluses and minuses. I think they want to show more signs of momentum. They're not showing a lot of momentum right now, and I think the markets need to see that things are moving. So if you do cut it in half, you probably could get the business stuff done by by fall. Well said. But to your point on gridlock, is there any tone or demeanor or body language to quote unquote cut it in half? I would think if anything, the president would lead on that. I mean, he he's the ultimate cut it in half guy. But what about everybody else? Well, let's see what Mnuchin does. There are a couple of other big, big players uh, from Goldman Sachs who I think can uh, urge the president to do things that the markets would like to see. But right now, it's all hands on deck on Obamacare. And to go back to what we talked about at the very beginning, this is eerily similar to eight years ago when a new president squandered his political capital on health care. Let me ask, you travel a ton. You're going up to New Hampshire, as you say. What are you hearing from people about the, the state of the economy? Clients you're talking to, people that you meet when you're on the road. We got the jobs number last week. 235,000, a a nice number. What are people saying to you as you travel? The one thing, guys, that strikes me when I see business leaders and I ask them, what's your biggest problem? Is it Obamacare? No. Is it regulations? No. Lack of skilled labor. They say that over and over again. All around the country, there's a fear that we're running out of skilled labor, that the labor market's really tight. And what comes next? Wage pressure and higher higher interest rates. If you raise the wage, they come out of the woodwork, right? Is that where we're heading? Yes, and I think that's why Yellen's going to move this week. I think she has to worry, Tom, that she's way behind the curve. Very quickly here, Greg, before we let you go, we've got this Fed meeting scheduled for Tuesday and Wednesday. Help us with the weather state of play here uh, in Washington. If, If things get bad, if there's a government shutdown, what happens to that meeting? Is it done telephonically? Yeah, they they have had a, a precedent of uh, having meetings by a conference call for an emergency hike, hike or a cut, so they can they can do that. The one thing, obviously, we got to watch is the statement. I think she'll make it clear. We got a few more moves to come this year. Greg Vallier, great to speak with you. Great to see you here uh, in D.C. My That's pleasure, Greg Vallier, Chief Global Strategist at Horizon. Uh, investments and Tom, we're we're missing you down here. Does I feel he, like I'm going to be stuck here. For, for, does for Greg the week. understand that that like it's going to snow like 20 inches, but within four gates with uh, Reagan of American <laughs> Airlines, it snows a hockey goal. I can't like wait. They, they push all the snow to the shuttle gates. That's right. <laughs> they, they just pile it up. <laughs> Greg, I hope you find. You know, I hope it's not like the blizzard of 1717. Greg, yeah, I vaguely you? recall that. Yeah, yeah. with Horizon <laughs> as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, 
SIPC.